Good evening and welcome to Monsters Among Us. I am your guide, Derek Hayes. A good evening and welcome everyone. I have something special lined up for you guys this evening. The fine folks over at Wondry and the brand new podcast, The Sneak, were kind enough to sponsor another bonus episode. And as it turns out, I'd been planning on sharing an episode from the new Monsters Among Us Beyond format over on Patreon. So, I figured, why not combine the two? So without further hesitation, a special presentation of Monsters Among Us Beyond, number 23, brought to you by the thrilling new podcast, The Sneak. But more on that here in a bit. Enjoy the show. Welcome to Monsters Among Us Beyond, number 23. I am your guide, Derek Hayes. This week's experimental theme comes to us courtesy of John LeMay. Thanks, John. We have so many new members that have signed up on Patreon over the past week and a half. So let me start off by saying welcome, and thank you so much for the support. Monsters Among Us Beyond, or MAUB as I've been calling it, has been going through some changes as of late, but I think we finally landed on something that everyone can enjoy. Now I have an amazing show lined up just for you guys, and as promised, this is the second half of the Great Outdoors Halloween special. So many people shared their stories, and I simply had to have a second episode. But as I said on the main show, I have even more submissions for this episode than for that one. So my commentary will be a little more limited to make sure that we can get everybody's story in. So let's kick things off with a story about a creature that one most likely wouldn't find terrifying. But that's not the opinion of this anonymous caller. Hello, Derek. I heard you need, you're looking for outdoorsman stories, and uh, I have one for you. So this was in Rocky Mountain National Park in uh, the summer of, I believe it was 2014. So I've been doing outdoorsy stuff since before I can remember hiking, climbing, skiing, mountain biking, canoeing even occasionally. I'd been out all day hiking and bouldering by myself and I'd been particularly energetic and psyched on just hiking and exploring this day so I'd hiked I don't know like 15 miles or something and this took place on my way back to the car probably less than a mile from the parking lot probably I don't know at least midnight and I'm very very used to being in the woods late at night totally comfortable with it particularly 
in the park. I've been climbing there since I was 16 and I'm 28 now. So I've been doing that for like 12 years. So what happened was I had stopped at this spot where I was taking a uh, shortcut from the main trail through this, on this ranger trail that goes down a pretty steep hill through the woods. And I think I'd stopped to uh, take a layer off or something and something caught my eye in the, in the trees which was um, eye shine, and it was red, which I'd never seen before, and that kind of immediately freaked me out, and my mind just kind of jumped to mountain lion. It's a mountain lion. You're going to get eaten. So I kind of immediately got a little bit adrenalized, but then I realized, I looked at it for a few seconds, and I realized I was actually looking at a rabbit, but there are no rabbits in Rocky Mountain National Park, and this was not like a wild hare. This was like a bunny rabbit, like a pet rabbit, like a big, it was maybe like almost a foot tall just sitting there big floopy ears white paws um and it just it was completely out of place it did not belong there and it was just staring at me like with a look of like no concern whatsoever and it was just kind of looking at me like what are you looking at and I was just kind of mesmerized and confused by it so I started walking up to it and I got up to within a few feet of it and I kind of started to feel really freaked out because there was just something really off about it. Like it just, it, I mean, as I said, it just didn't belong there. So I started to back away from it and started going down this hill. And as soon as I turned my back to this thing, I started to get even more freaked out. And so I just started kind of booking it down this hill and just ran for a few minutes until I kind of, the trail kind of flattened out a little bit and stopped and kind of started like laughing at myself like dude you just got scared of a rabbit and ran away like (laughs) what are you what are you doing um and then i turned and looked to my right and the rabbit was right there again right next to me so then i got even more freaked out and ran again and ran all the way back to my car um and you know i've uh i've had a friend with a you know a, a similar pet rabbit and that thing you know wild rabbits obviously can can move really fast but like the big floofy pet ones are usually pretty slow so I don't know how this thing was able to keep up with me I don't know what it was doing there but I was getting really bad vibes from it it freaked me out to this day in my mind I think of it as a demon rabbit it felt and I usually don't <laughs> talk about things in, in the, these terms but it felt demonic to me and as far as like the only logical explanation is that someone brought their pet rabbit, carried it, like hiked with it for, I don't know, almost a mile and then just ditched it in the woods, which is a strange course of action to me. And again, also, it just it seemed totally comfortable where it was. So I don't know how it got there, what it was doing there. Um, freaked me out. Yeah. Love the show. Yeah, all right, that's it. All right, bye. Thank you, caller. Now, at first glance, this story may appear to be funny, humorous. But keep in mind that the infamous Bell Witch haunting, a haunting that took place in the early 19th century, began with the patriarch, John Bell, seeing a strange, rabbit-like creature while hunting on his Tennessee farm. But it's probably much more likely that someone did abandon this particular bunny. I imagine it would follow humans around, associating us with food and safety. But what about that strange feeling that our caller felt? Well, as it turns out, I have a theory about that as well. 
Perhaps a natural predator was actually stalking this little guy. And the predator's attempts were thwarted when our caller showed up. But the predator, let's say maybe a mountain lion, bear, bobcat, or even coyote, decided to stick around. Is it possible that the caller picked up on this predator's proximity, despite the fact that it was hidden and he did not see it? But to be honest, that chain of events is a bit of a stretch in itself. And all I can say is hopefully it wasn't a domesticated pet left to the elements. Thank you again, caller, for sharing that story. Now next up, we make our way over to the Peach State, where Stuart has a strange story from another time. This is his call. Hey, this is Stuart. I was listening to the show, and you had a caller talk about pterodactyls, and that was right after the episode where you asked for hunter stories. I got me thinking, uh, I don't know the validity of this story. Um, a buddy of mine in high school claimed that it happened, and I tried to look up information to see if it's actually a thing, and I found one result. So I don't know if this is, you know, it might be the same guy, because in the article I saw, there was no name listed, but I don't know. Um, but I figure I'll just go ahead with the story. Where I live in northern Florida, it's uh, it's not really what you would think of as Florida. It's more like southern Alabama. It's a lot of uh, rural areas, and a lot of people go hunting. And uh, I think it was my sophomore year of high school, uh, one of my buddies came back from summer break, so I guess it was my junior year, uh, one of my buddies came back from summer break and was talking about how he had gone out with his family, he had, uh, 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 his grandfather lived in uh, Georgia, and they had gone out to his grandfather's place, and they had gone hunting, and he and his grandfather had been out hunting, and a, like a, the way he explains it was kind of like a mix between a velociraptor and a bird. Like he said, it had a lot of feathers on it and it had more of a beak than an actual, like what you would think of as a velociraptor mouth. But he said they, uh, they were out hunting, walking down a trail and they saw what looked like a velociraptor walk out of the, uh, of the brush and before either of them could, you know, react to pull up a gun or try to, you know, uh, the way he explains it is they were both in shock seeing something that bizarre that neither one of them thought to bring up a gun. And so they're both just standing there staring at this, you know, velociraptor looking thing that looks back at them. And then, you know, the moment it kind of sees them, it, it, you know, panicked and took off into the woods again. And he and his granddad tried to chase it. The, the thing outpaced him easily. He said it was probably moving, you know, 30, 35 miles an hour, just booking it through the woods as fast as it could. He said it was about as fast, if not faster, than a deer, um, which anybody who's gone hunting knows that they can move pretty, pretty fast when they want to. Um, but, yeah, I don't know. Again, I looked up to see if this was a real thing. The article uh, that pops up that talks about a guy and his granddad going out hunting and seeing a rapture. 
I kind of skimmed the article, so I don't really know, you know, all the details of it. Uh, but my friend in high school wasn't one to really make up stories. He wasn't, you know, he wasn't a braggart or anything. I mean, he would brag about how many points were on his buck, but that's about the extent of it. I never really knew. So, I mean, take it with a grain of salt. It might be true, but if it is true, it'd be interesting. And if, you know, the other article is a different guy, that would make two sightings, at least that I know of, of this Georgia Raptor. Unfortunately, trying to do any more research, there's a, uh, a raptor sanctuary, like a pretty large one in Georgia. So anytime you try to look up Georgia Raptor, all you get are these articles about this mountain sanctuary for uh, raptor birds of prey, like uh, falcons and stuff. So it's real hard to find anything on a Georgia Raptor because 99% of your results are about the sanctuary. Uh, if anybody else has any more information, I would love to hear it. Um, it's kind of fascinating to think that there might be some, you know, descended of a velociraptor. Weirder things have happened. They find fish that have been alive since, you know, the Cretaceous period that are still alive. So maybe. But that's all uh, I was calling in about. And I keep up the good work. Hope you have a good day. Thank you, Stuart. Now, to be honest, this is a cryptid that I've never heard of. And I love when that happens. Now, it seems that a majority of the mentions of this creature stem back to that same story. Possibly even the same story that Stuart is referring to. But if you're interested in more information, I suggest a video by YouTube's Cryptids and Monsters. Fernando did a great job on a short video about the Georgia Raptor that I highly suggest checking out, especially if this story does something for you. You can find a link to it in the notes for this Patreon post. Thanks again, Stuart, for introducing me to a new cryptid. Seems I have some reading to do. Now, just like the main version of this special episode, this one too features three calls that seem to have a lot in common. So, just like that episode, I'll play them back to back, then discuss collectively. The first of these comes to us from Scott in the state of New York. Hey Derek, my name is Scott. My niece turned me on to your podcast. Her name's Summer, and I thank her for it. Outstanding. I just love it. Anyways, I want to uh, tell you my story about outdoorsmen. You were looking for stories. I grew up in the woods. Been hunting pretty much forever. Never experienced anything like this before. I uh, was uh, at the time living near the Adirondack Mountains, on the edge of it, really. It's an area called Tug Hill. Big archery hunter, and in archery, you got to get out before the daylight. Of course, I got out to my tree stand about an hour early, and I'm sitting up in my tree stand, and it's pitch black, and all of a sudden, things got real quiet, and it sounded like a massive something running in the woods. To be honest, I was actually kind of excited. I thought maybe there was a couple deer running right at me, even though it wasn't... Uh, light out yet. It's always good to have deer in the area. So anyways, whatever it was, was coming at me like a freight train. And then all of a sudden, it stops. And the hair on the back of my neck just stood up because I was, it just something didn't seem right. 
so again, it's pitch black out. When I hunt uh, archery, I always carry a handgun. So I just put my hand down into my uh, jacket. For some reason, I don't know. I just felt threatened. And all of a sudden, whatever it was in front of me, you could kind of hear it like pivoting, if you would, like almost like looking around. And then it screamed the loudest scream I've ever heard in my life. It almost sounded like a fire siren. It was so loud it made my ear ears ring like you wouldn't believe. And this thing's only about, uh, oh, I'd say about 30, 40 yards in front of me. So uh, my natural reaction is I pull my uh, handgun out and I point it in that general direction, shaking like a madman, and usually don't rattle that easy. Like I said, I grew up in the woods and seen it all. So it's... Uh, the screaming stops. It was like one long, giant fire siren scream. It just stops, and it's dead quiet. And that's where my ears are ringing. And then you can hear whatever it was turn tail, if you will, and haul rear end the opposite direction to this woods. Again, it's not like a freight train. I sat there in my tree stand just trying to figure out what just happened. I uh, composed myself, gathered my stuff, and it seemed like an eternity before the sun came up. And once that sun came up, I was out of there. And to this day, that tree stand is still in that tree. I've never been back. Anyways, that's my story. Thanks for the podcast. It's awesome. Love it. Uh, Keep up the good work. Thanks. Thanks, Scott. Next up, we hear from Kai in Mississippi. Hey, Derek. This is Kai. I called back in, I think, season three. Uh, You referred to me as Kyle. There's no L in there, sir, but all good. I was calling about your spooky outdoors, and uh, I have a story. had to be when I was 10 to 12. Now, I'm the oldest of four in my family and all of my siblings and I have started hunting when we were three. My, our dad started taking us with. So when I was hunting by myself about nine, I believe, nine or ten, and this is in Mississippi, we were at a family friend's place deer hunting. It was mid-November. And then if I was 10 or 12, so this had to be 2010-ish, somewhere around there. But I was walking back going probably 700 yards past the guy's house and uh, I was walking back down this little road and off to my right through some pines some young pines was a pond down in the bottom there I mean it wasn't very far down but it was you know it was maybe 20 foot kind of downhill a little ways to this pond and then all of a sudden this baby crying sound starts crazy right so i'm hearing this baby cry and i I take a few steps closer to the edge of the road mind you i have a 243 in my hand loaded i was easing looking for deer before i got set down and i just decide i got to that to the edge of that road and i decided i'm not going through those pines to find out what that was even though i had an idea of what it was 
It just I, at the time it didn't click. But I went hunted, and then uh, that evening when I come back, this is in the afternoon. It had to be I guess three o'clock or so, maybe earlier than that. When when I heard the baby crying, I come back talk to my father, and my father informs me, and it clicked when he told me that it is a in fact a bobcat, and that then I realized that I had been told that. So I hear a lot of these stories of people hearing baby crying, and to me it is a bobcat. It's always been a bobcat for me. Funny thing is, people don't hear it often, and because I, I've lived in bobcat country my whole life, I've seen one bobcat and heard one bobcat. So, you know, everything always has a rational explanation that, at least for the most part, I would say. You know, if you hear a baby crying in the woods, maybe a bobcat. But don't take the chance. Just walk away. <laughs> That's all I got. Good luck with the show and join it every time. Thank you. And lastly, we hear from Dustin in parts unknown. Hey, Derek. My name is Dustin. I live in North Carolina. Actually, not too far from Bladenboro, where the whole Beast of Bladenboro thing occurred. Stories about my dad and his brother occurred back in the 90s on the Noose River. It's a river in North Carolina, not a, any sort of commercial or anything like that. It's just for, you know, fishing. There's really nothing going on there. And there are long spots of it that, especially back then, have not been developed. They were fishing one night when they said that they heard a woman screaming. And my dad is a Marine. My uncle's a pretty tough dude himself. So they decide that they're going to go try to help this woman out. And they said the closer they got on the boat, the louder the screaming got. And the more women that started screaming. Said the screaming was just coming up over the water it was echoing throughout the entire valley that the the river was in and just rattling both of their nerves. When they finally got close enough to the spot where the screaming was coming from, turns out it was actually uh, two bobcats that were beating the living crap out of one another. So uh, just thought I'd leave this for you for the Spooky Outdoors show. Really enjoy the show. Thanks for all that you do. And uh, hope you have a good day. Congrats on the marriage. Thank you, gentlemen. Now I'm getting kind of old, so I remember the early days of YouTube where you could stumble upon terrifying videos and not know if it was real or some sort of fabrication. Alien interviews, ghosts walking through walls, and Sasquatch screams. Lots and lots of Sasquatch screams. There was one in particular that I believe was filmed in the late 90s or early 2000s in California's Sequoia National Park. This video, to be precise. Very strange noise. Seems to be coming from some kind of an animal. It's been going on for about a minute now. 
coming from the east. Seems to be getting closer. That clip comes courtesy of Animal Planet. Now this particular video gave me chills. Whatever that thing is, it sounds large and pissed. And I'm smart enough to know that that's a dangerous combination. It sounds primal, guttural, and almost mournful. And for a majority of my adult life, I believed it to be made by a Sasquatch-type creature. But as I get older, and hopefully wiser... I begin to realize that there are normal forest dwellers with nightmare fuel for mating calls. And the more I hear calls like Dustin's and Kai's, the more I realize that if a creature such as the Sasquatch were to exist and stay undetected for the past three or four hundred years, I guarantee you it is not screaming from the hilltops and highways. That is not how you remain hidden. But that's sad. I'm camping in the Sequoia National Park this very weekend for my 40th birthday. And you can bet your butt I'll be on high alert as I'm laying there in that tent. Thanks again, gentlemen, for sharing these amazing stories. Our next submission of the evening is of the written variety. The following comes to us from Seamus in Tennessee. Hi, Derek. My name is Seamus and I'm 12 years old and I currently live in East Tennessee. So there are a whole lot of cow fields nearby and one is basically in my yard. So when the story took place I was 11 and me and one of my friends decided to go hiking around the cow fence in my yard. You know, to just have some fun. Maybe find something to do since we were tired of playing video games. So we started walking deeper into the wilderness and we came to a small valley. I was looking down into the valley, enjoying being in nature, when my friend pokes me in the shoulder and says, Dude, what's that? So I turn around and he points to the bottom of one of the trees, and there was a black figure peeking out from the side of the tree. It was hard to make out its entire body, but it had a huge human-like head and long black arms, which it had wrapped around the side of the tree. Well, I had a BB gun with me at the time, for protection and I raised it and shot toward this figure, and as soon as I did this, it disappeared. I was pretty spooked by then, so me and my friend took off running through the cow field. We didn't stop until we got home. I told my mom what had happened, and she said I should submit my story to your show, so that's what I did. By the way, love the show. Big fan. Thank you. Seamus. Well, thank you, Seamus. We're going to hear a lot more about upright hairy creatures in that part of the country later on in this episode. But thank you, Seamus, for reporting that encounter. Sounds to me like the often reported behavior most researchers refer to as tree peeking. Well, from Bigfoot to Big Cats, the following is Scott's submission from the Lone Star State. Hey Derek, this is Scott. I'm from Northeast Texas. This goes for your spooky outdoors, for the hunters. We hunt on a piece of property. We've been there this year, be going on around 40 years. For a frame of reference of where we're located, we're probably southwest of Shreveport on the Texas side, about 50 miles or so. So back in the mid-90s, me and a high school friend, we were going to go down there and go squirrel hunting. 
in October. So at this point, it's all virgin timber. It's since been turned into timberland. So, but but back in the 90s, it was still all virgin timber before they cut everything down. So we go to the end of our main road, and you go across a creek, and the road kind of wise. So you've got about an area, a big circle area, you know, probably about almost an acre. It kind of opens up a little bit at the Y across the creek. But the brush line and the tree line, you know, it's all virgin timber, so there's a bunch of underbrush and, you know, bigger trees, aged trees, some smaller trees. So there was one. So we're standing there at this Y trying to figure out which way we're going to go to to do some squirrel hunting. And it's a calm day in October. There's no wind. Uh, A smaller tree, I'd say a 20-foot tall tree, you know, the base about, you know, four inches circumference maybe about like that so we're standing there the underbrush underneath these trees at the edge of this opening you know they're it's pretty thick and it's pretty tall we can't see the base of the trees you know probably from six feet and down but one of these trees starts swaying on us and we're probably no more than 25 yards from this tree and it starts swaying and it's a smaller tree you know one of the smaller trees a 20-foot tree with the with the base about as big around as your leg i guess so this tree gets to swaying a little bit on top and then it just keeps going and it keeps swaying and this thing starts swaying violent bending almost to 45 degree angle on each side knocking into other trees and me and my my buddy there we're sitting there with our shotguns with you know six shot in for squirrel and we're looking at each other and we're looking at the tree and it's just swaying and it does this about you know five or six times well, we we lo- we raise our guns up off our hip and we take the safeties off and we're looking at each other like, what the heck is going on? Well, after a few minutes of contemplating it and everything settled back down, we decided we we were going to walk. We couldn't see, like I say, there's so much underbrush you couldn't see at the base of the tree or even you know up you know maybe eight to ten feet. But this tree was bigger than any human or animal that I know of that would be able to make that tree sway the way it was so we decided that we was going to walk up to it he's on he's on one side i'm on the other side and we're walking up to it and we you know we got our shotguns lowered and off safety and we're inching up in there and we got we got to the underbrush we never heard anything run off Uh, we kind of walked into the brush a little bit around toward the base of the tree we couldn't see obviously there's so much brush and leaves and stuff on the ground you can't really see much like it never heard anything run off. It never made a noise. So we don't know what that was, but I don't know. There's not many things that it could have been that were natural world, it seems like. This is kind of in the same time frame in the mid-'90s. We, we were seeing some uh, cats on our lease, like mountain lion-top cats. Uh, I saw a big black one. Oh, my stand was on a bend of a creek, and off the bend of the creek, there's a little drainage ditch about three feet deep, three feet wide something you could step in and out of and jump across and it's not too far from the front of the stand uh, probably about 30 40 yards out in front of me and it gets over to the side and goes past the stand you know it's probably even closer than that and uh, i'm up on a in a stand about you know 25 feet off the ground and i see this cat come in and jump in it and and about the, before i could get my gun up and get a scope on it to get a better look it jumped into that draw and this was a big cat long tail in the back that laid across the ground and curled up at the end, it was black. And I kept waiting for it to come out of that draw, or I should have been able to see it as, as uh, shallow as that draw was. I never saw it again. 
but a lady had seen a, a blonde cat jump up on a log in front of her. Of course, we didn't shoot it, but just some strange activity. That's probably the strangest I've ever had. Have a good day. Thanks, Scott. This is probably ABC tinfoil hat country, but I'm starting to wonder if black jaguars are finding it much easier to migrate north and areas previously patrolled by pumas or mountain lions than it is their spotted counterparts. Perhaps their color gives them a distinct advantage, the ability to stay relatively hidden. Then again, most, if not all, trail cameras have night vision capabilities, rendering their color absolutely useless. Yet we're not catching images of these creatures on those camera traps. So does that mean they don't exist at all? Or does it mean that they're simply good at hiding? And if it is the latter, why are so many of us able to see them? Thank you again, Scott, for submitting. You know I love those big cat stories. Now before we explore the next call of the evening, we must first briefly discuss tonight's sponsor, And I know a lot of you guys are true crime fans, so be sure to listen up to this one. In the fall of 2008, a sleepy Seattle suburb was shocked by a crime that no one expected. A local football star planned a daring bank robbery, complete with decoys, disguises, and an outlandish getaway plan. He drew the whole thing up just like a game-winning play on the field, and almost got away with it. The sneak follows the twisting story of a once great athlete who committed that crime and how the robbery forever changed the small town where it occurred. You are about to hear a preview of the sneak from Wondery in USA Today. As you listen, be sure to subscribe to the sneak on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever it is you're listening right now. Nine one one. What is your emergency? Armed robbery. Okay. What address? Uh. Okay. He's running down. Well, it's in Monroe, the Bank of America. Okay. What? shorts. Sir. What address are you at? Uh. Highway two in Old Orange. Is that Ruth Realty? Correct. Are there any weapons? In, are there any weapons involved? I see OC sprayed the uh, armed truck. He just dropped his cap. Okay, is he a white male? White male, brown hair. What colored clothing is he wearing? Camouflage shorts, dark blue, long sleeve shirt. Okay, where is he running? He ran down into the Cascade Erie Park behind my office. Hey everyone, my name is Nate Scott and I'm the host of The Sneak, a new serialized true crime podcast out from For the Win and USA Today Sports. The Sneak's first season is about a crime, a heist. It took place on September 30th, 2008, just one day before the U.S. Senate would vote to bail out many of the largest banks in our country. And it took place in the small town of Monroe, Washington. This crime, an armed robbery of $400,000 cash, was audacious. It was ornate. It was also a little bit ridiculous. There were disguises and Craigslist hired decoys, was a once-great athlete-turned-criminal mastermind. And that was all before the grand flourish, a daring escape in an inner tube down a river. This is a crime story, a uniquely American crime story. But as we found with new reporting, it's also the story of a small town, and that town's secrets. 
secrets about what actually happened with that crime back in 2008 and who actually helped pull it off. We hope you enjoy listening to a taste of our podcast. This is The Sneak. Can we get you to clap in front of your face? It's like that's our version of the old movie. Okay. So just to start, uh, what's your name? Mitch Ruth. What do you do for a living, Mitch? Uh, I'm a real estate broker. In? Monroe, Washington. Mitch Ruth is the 911 caller from a moment ago. Mitch is probably six feet tall, burly, with a strong hand that just about swallows mine when he shakes it. He reminds me of a middle school vice principal I once had. He's funny and charming, but he definitely commands authority. To put it another way, I really like spending time with Mitch, but he's not someone I'd want to piss off. We're sitting in his office in the heart of Monroe, a smallish town 30 miles northeast of Seattle. Driving up into Monroe from the city, it's nothing but lush suburbia, Boeing and Amazon money. Drive out the other side, though, and there's not much. Monroe feels a bit like a dividing line between here and out there. How long have you been here? Oh, boy. Uh, I've lived in Monroe since I got out of the Army in 1979. Uh, Followed family, followed family, and eventually I did come into the family business that I worked so hard to avoid. By 2008, Mitch had settled into the family realty business and was a well-liked and respected member of the Monroe community. He has even served as city councilman. On September 30th of that year, Mitch was sitting at his desk, the same desk he's sitting at for this interview. While on the phone with a client, Mitch saw a young man across the street dressed in landscaping gear using a pump sprayer on the grass outside the Bank of America. Then it happened. Well, the armored uh, car is pulling in to deliver money, pretty much on their routine timetable. And people are milling around. Young man starts walking towards the front of the building, throws the pump sprayer down, grabs a can out of his pocket as he's charging at one of the uh, armored car, I don't know what you call them, security people. Um, I told my client on the phone, this was all very quick, told him there's a bank robbery, gotta go. Mitch watched as the thief ran up and sprayed the Brinks truck employee with bear mace, a kind of pepper spray you can buy at outdoor stores. The thief then grabbed the bag and took off toward Old Owen Road. I thought he was trying to jump into a car. Um, No, he's playing Frogger, trying to get across the street, dodging cars. Well, I had the phone, cordless, and I'm on the phone with 911. They're asking for a play-by-play, and I got the bright idea I could chase him, and I could catch him. Was that instincts, you running out the door? What were you thinking? You know, why did you chase him? You know, what What do you say? It's like, well, you know, I'm in real estate. Times have been tough. If a guy's got a bag of money like that, he's not getting away without buying a home. What do you say, you know? (laughs) 
I ran out the back door knowing there's no vehicle escape. I presumed he was going to get in a vehicle. Um, and he was pretty fast. As he was running, he's pulling off his hat. Turns out all this is a disguise. Pulling off the wig, the mask, um, ripping off the, pant the shorts that he had on over other clothes underneath. Um, and he's got a bag full of money. How was he carrying it? Under his arm. Like a football? Right. <laughs> Ironic, isn't it? Yeah. <laughs> Can you state your name and title, please? Uh, Tim Bazell, detective. How long have you been with the Monroe Police Department? Uh, for over 25 years. Tim Bazell was the primary detective in the Brinks truck robbery case. He's talking to us in a back conference room of the Monroe Police Department. Bazell is fit, with close-cropped hair and a warm smile. He's polite and precise. Before he ever became a policeman, Bazell was a financial analyst for Boeing. Bazell warned us before we began that the crime happened 11 years ago, and he might not remember everything about that day. He then proceeded to remember everything about that day in exacting detail. That morning, I was going to do a follow-up on a case at an elementary school. And I was over there talking with uh, staff, and um, I didn't have my radio with me, but I, I was hearing sirens and sirens and sirens, and I was like, okay, something's going on. So you get a call over the radio that relays the information about? Yes. yes. What, what, was that, what was that call like to get? It was, yeah, I was like, it was interesting. Um, Do you remember you know, what was said? That he was floating down uh, the river in an inner tube. If you like the podcast and don't want to miss an episode moving forward, you can subscribe to The Sneak for free on Apple Podcasts. You can also find us on Spotify, Stitcher, or TuneIn pretty much anywhere you listen to podcast. Now, I'm certainly not much of a true crime kind of guy, but I do love me some football. So I think I might give this one a little test drive myself. If this does interest you, or you think maybe this interests somebody that you know, please visit the link, or at the very least, spread the word. A huge thank you again to Wondry USA Today, and The Sneak for hooking everyone up with bonus content. Now back to Monsters Among Us Beyond, number 23. Now our next call comes to us from my neck of the woods, but the story is from a state away. This is Angela's written submission. So I don't really have a specific story besides the fact that we fish here quite a bit, and there are legends. Terrence from Deep Creek Outfitters actually did a video interview of some locals about this subject. The location is Pyramid Lake in Nevada, and there are big trout here, and people come from all over to fish. It's a very popular fly fishing lake. However, many people die there every year because of the lack of rangers, due to the fact that it's on an Indian reservation, usually from boats failing and no one responding fast enough. Or is it perhaps the legend of the lake? the water babies. Now before I play the interview that Angela attached, here's a little about the water baby legend. And for that I'm going to read a paragraph from Denver Michael's book, People Are Seeing Something. This is from page 61 of that book. 
Simply put, the legendary water babies are the spirits of disabled newborns that were killed. Now, these vengeful, disembodied spirits are said to haunt the lake. They take the revenge upon those who venture too far into Pyramid Lake. Almost yearly, a trout fisherman goes missing. Bodies of the unfortunate anglers are rarely recovered. While it could certainly be coincidental for the occasional outdoorsman on Pyramid Lake to vanish, never to be seen again. But many attribute the disappearances to the water babies. In fact, some people claim to hear the eerie cries of the babies when they get too close to the shoreline. Now here's that interview that Terrence recorded. I've been coming out here since I was nine years old. And they're, they're for real. You only see them in the fall and spring of the year. But uh, you'll hear them in the evenings like right now. You can hear them out there on the edge of the lake from time to time. And they make the funniest sound, the screeching. They almost sound like a bobcat screeching. But you'll know it. If you're on a ladder and you're standing out here, a lot of times you'll see them swimming through the water. You just see the kind of a shadow going through. And they go they'll get you. It's not all fun and games and tight lines. And they'll never find the body. They never find the bodies. And how many bodies last year that went under the water that five. never popped up? Five. That never popped up? Yeah, there was five of them. About a month ago, there was two skulls wash up over at Dago Bay. Nice. So. What is the depth of the lake at this point? Uh, last I heard, it was about 360 feet. You think you could ever swim down that far to get one of your buddies that went under? Nope. Not me. Nope. I wouldn't go in this lake. I would not swim in this lake. As many longtime listeners know, I'm not a fan of the water, so stories like these really rattle my bones. Thank you again, Angela and Terrence, for sharing that information. Our next submission is also of the written variety. The following is Ron's story from the state of Wisconsin. Hello, Derek. My name is Ron. I'm from Wisconsin and I have three strange accounts that happened in the woods, all of which were on the same property where my family and I deer hunt, which is located roughly 20 miles from the Wisconsin Dells. I share a tree stand with my mom, and our stand is in a small valley that used to be a creek bed. We were sitting in the stand facing the east, and in front of our stand there was a small pond, which is the last remnants of the creek. Across the pond there is a rather large tree. Now we were watching for deer, and I saw something really strange and I was wondering if I was maybe going crazy, or if my eyes were simply playing tricks on me. So I didn't say anything for about 15 minutes, and I finally asked my mom, did you see something really strange about 15 minutes ago? And she asked, what did you see? So I explained that I saw a black cloud puff out of the rather large tree about the size of a six-foot-tall man. It reminded me of the black smoke that is exhausted out of a semi-truck at a stoplight. It seemed to flow in a wispy fashion, and then just disappear. Not sure what I saw, but I was glad I wasn't the only one. Now the second story was from the same tree stand. However, my cousin was hunting in it this time. He told me he'd seen an old man with a large mustache walk down the ridge from the south, down into the valley, and through the pond, only to disappear into thin air before crossing that pond. 
My cousin said he has seen the old man on two occasions. I find it extremely fascinating, but creepy, however. My cousin said in both occasions he saw deer within 20 minutes of seeing the old man. And last but not least, my mother and father were hunting in my dad's tree, and to the north of this tree he has a food plot. One morning, about 7.30 a.m., my mom and dad watched a white mist in the shape of a man walk across this food plot and disappear. I never felt scared, but certainly intrigued. Thank you for the show. I greatly look forward to every new episode. Keep up the great work. Sincerely, Ron from Wisconsin. Well, thank you, Ron. And in regards to the black cloud, at least... I have a bit of a theory to propose. Puffball mushrooms shoot a cloud of spores that resemble smoke. The spores come in all colors, including black. Now this could explain what Ron and his mother saw. But then again, these mushrooms need to be smashed to force the spores into the air. If it was a mushroom spore cloud that the two saw, who or what smashed down those mushrooms? Thanks again, Ron, for sharing that submission. Now, our next call is equally as mysterious. Even the identity of the submitter is a mystery. The following was submitted anonymously from the state of Massachusetts. About ten years ago, a friend and I were fishing out in western Massachusetts. We found a pond that we had never been to before and planned to head out at 7 p.m. This pond had a series of densely wooded islands, and we knew that the fish would probably be sticking close to the shores, so we motored over. We had been out for probably an hour, and the sun was beginning to set. This is when my friend noticed that there was a man standing on one of the islands, staring at us. I looked over, and the sky was completely still and just looking. I didn't see any boats or kayaks beached on the shore, and thought maybe the guy had stranded himself. We called over to him and waved, and he didn't respond. Now I was starting to get a really creepy feeling, and I looked to my friend as if to ask, what now? My friend went to call out again when we both looked back, and the guy had disappeared. At this point, I was ready to call it, and I started up the motor. We began to go around the island to head back to the trailer. When we rounded the island, we looked back and there was the guy again, standing perfectly still, just staring at us. I hauled it back quick as possible and loaded the boat back onto the trailer. I've not been able to go back to that pond and have actually moved several hours away since then, but to this day, I don't know if it was just some crazy person or a ghost of someone who may have drowned on that pond. Thank you, caller. I have yet another idea. I wonder if this gentleman was simply swimming, perhaps jumping in and out of the water. Is it possible that when he was actually in the water, our caller simply couldn't see him, his head not penetrating far enough above the surface, but standing out of the water, onto the land, our caller could. Now this is a shot in the dark. Obviously, I don't know the terrain, distance, lighting conditions, etc., so take all that with a grain of salt. I do suggest that the caller does some research. Perhaps if someone did die in that location, it shouldn't be that difficult to uncover. 
Thanks again for sharing. Now moving right along, our next submission is a call of a different variety. This is Matt's call from North Carolina. Hello, Derek. This is a short outdoor story. My wife and I were walking around our neighborhood. We live a ways out, so our area is still wooded a bit. I'm a pretty regular birder, but we're supposed to be walking fast for some exercise, which I hate. I heard what I thought was a hawk's call, so I stopped walking. I'm looking around and I don't see it flying. So I'm thinking, okay, was I mistaken? My wife's not getting on me yet, so I grab a quick look at the tree line, which is about 50 feet away across a clearing, to see if I can catch a peek of any birds hanging out. I don't see any birds, but one of the trees goes digital. I don't know how else to say it other than the tree froze into a digital, pixelated form like your TV does sometimes when your bandwidth lags. It was only for a couple seconds, then it went back to normal. So I'm left standing there like, did that just happen? So I thought I'd send this in to see if anyone else has experienced anything like this. I love the show. Thanks, Matt from North Carolina. Thank you, Matt. To be honest, this reminds me of Justin and Harley's experience from their trip to Idaho. For all you new Patreon supporters, be sure to go back a few episodes to hear that deep dive on Justin and Harley's experiences. So I don't know. Was it a glitch in the Matrix? Trick of the light? Perhaps some sort of unverified military technology? Hopefully, with time, we will one day figure this all out but I'm not holding my breath. Thanks again, Matt, for sharing. Now our next call of the evening takes us south of the border by way of an anonymous caller. Here is that story. Hey, Derek. I just want to thank you for using my story from the trucker stories from my friend down in Mexico and heard you guys asking for stories of people who are hunters or whatever. Actually, reminded me that the same guy, the one, uh, he told us a lot of stories as I was growing up, like I was saying last time. He was, I believe, some sort of forest ranger or something in Mexico back in the 70s before he was a trucker. Basically, there's a part of Mexico that's really swampy and it's in the central part of Mexico. It's where my family's from and that's where Don Juan is from. And uh, he was like, uh, I guess he was in his 20s or so and he was uh, like a forest ranger. So one day uh, he got this call that, you know, there was some weird disturbance in uh, this swampy area, basically with some kids or something walking across the river or something. And so he's like one of the few forest rangers back then. So he went over there and he tried to, you know, find out what was going on. And so he goes over there, you know, he, he gets to the swamp and he goes like just routinely checking out and all this stuff. And, you know, and he sees these kids across the river. They looked strange to him. You know, he couldn't put his finger on them, but the girl looked like she was, I don't know, wearing his raggedy white dress. The boy, I guess it was a boy too, and uh, basically he also looked out of place like they were from like the 1800s or something. You know, so he thought it was weird, but he started calling to him like, hey, you know, can you come across the river or whatever? Well, the river wasn't too deep, so the kids could have crossed it easily. 
you know, and then the little girl's like, no, I can't because, you know, it's too deep or whatever. And so he's like, okay, kids will be kids. And so he tries to go around it. Basically, he gets to where they were standing and they were gone. And he goes around, looks for where the kids could have gone, calls off for them. You know, he couldn't find anything. Except eventually he finds it on like this tree or a bush or something. He finds like an amulet or something. And, you know, he picks it up, goes back to town. And uh, he asks his like, you know, superior officer or whoever, they just happen or whatever. And then the guy like freaks out and tells him that don't ever show that amulet to him ever again. Dohan was like, what? You know? Anyway, so he goes back with his amulet. He goes around and he starts asking people. He eventually finds this old lady. And the old lady tells him to give it to him, to her. And he does. And he asks, like, what's this amulet about? And he, she just says that it belongs to her daughter. And she had died about 50 years before. Needless to say, he basically retired from that. And then he became a trucker. And then he had that whole trucker incident. So anyways, yeah, that's... You know, another creepy story from the one had tons of them uh, from him growing up. And I hope to hear this story on the show, too. Keep up the good work. See you soon. Bye. Thank you, caller. This sounds like the classic story of Resurrection Mary, a famous ghost from Chicago's South Side. She's picked up along the road. The young man driving offers to take her home. He does so without incident. And it's the next day that he realizes... She forgot her shawl. When he delivers it to the very house he left her at the night before, an elderly woman informs him that her daughter died years ago. And despite that fact, the young man still possesses a shawl that belonged to her. Now these two stories seem to share many critical elements, which begs the question, are these less of an experience and more of a cautionary tale? Thanks again, caller, for submitting yet again. Now this next call connects with me in a interesting way, but more on that in a minute. For now, the following is Matt's story from the state of Nebraska. My name is Matt and I'm from Nebraska. I don't know if you're still looking for spooky outdoor submissions or not. I hope this is helpful anyways. I want to share two tales, one that I can explain and the other more terrifying that is more difficult to explain. I am an avid outdoorsman and I spend a tremendous amount of time in wilder places, both alone and in groups, in various parts of the Rocky Mountains and in the Midwest. I am also very skeptical and truly believe that most supernatural encounters are entirely explainable. I'm a medical professional and I try to critically examine the world around me. I encourage my fellow listeners to remember that everything sounds bigger and scarier in the bush and in the dark. For example, a tiny box turtle hustling through some grass the other day scared the hell out of me because I wasn't paying attention and it sounded big. Cicadas, distant cattle, creaking trees, overhead airplanes echoing in the canyon, or any other number of entirely natural or man-made sounds can be very unnerving if you don't know what you're hearing. Our brains play tricks on us. Finally, the scariest things that have happened to me outdoors were because of people being weird or creepy, either intentionally or unintentionally. That said, here is my first tale. 
Recently, I was hunting alone in a familiar place. It was getting late in the morning, and I was starting to get hot, so I decided to rest about 60 yards from a derelict log cabin. Old ruins from the pioneer times aren't entirely unusual sight around here, but it can be a little creepy anyways. I always try to stay alert in these particular locations because the area is home to small population of mountain lions, and I have personally heard them out there before. It's a little hard to completely relax knowing that there is a non-zero population of predators, whether one is armed or not, and I may have been a little on the edge near this creepy old homestead, alone and miles from civilization. It probably also didn't help that I had monsters among us on the brain. I should also know better than to listen on my way out to the woods and hills. I took my phone from my pocket to check the time, and just then I heard the most terrifying sound I've ever heard. Like grinding, creaking teeth, but right in my left ear. The hair on my scalp stands on end, just thinking about it. It was sort of like the sound that zombies or ghosts make in movies or video games. That sounds unnatural and really gets the adrenaline going like a guttural, low growl or dry bones rubbing together. I was on my feet in an instant, and not seeing any ghosts or ghouls, I got out of there quickly. I was freaked out. Here's the thing, though. I heard the noise a second time on the way back to my truck when I checked the time again. At this point, I'm curious and started to investigate. It turned out that my phone was somehow interacting with my electronic hearing protection. For those that don't know, they are like earmuffs that allow the user to hear ambient noises but filter out gunfire and other dangerously loud sounds. I'd forgotten I was wearing them, and that's why the noise was right there in my ear. Very creepy, but very explainable. So while I've had several mundane experiences outside, my next story is just weird enough to overcome my skepticism. This happened in the summer of 2017. I was traveling with my then-girlfriend, now-wife, and we were determined to see as many things during our vacation as we could because I was going back to college that fall. The week prior, we were backpacking in Glacier National Park in Montana and had decided that we were going to do some simple car camping in Minnesota. We were both getting pretty tired from all the hiking and hours upon hours of driving, so we wanted to take it a little easy. Despite the fatigue, we were both very excited to explore more beautiful places that we had never seen before. We were camping near Mankato, in an area that was nowhere near wilderness. Just a regular family campground type place, with showers and everything. We knew so little about Minnesota and the area, that we had selected this campground mere hours before arriving. We wanted to fly by the seat of our pants, as it were, in stark contrast to the trip in Montana that took months of preparation. It was hot and humid and raining and crawling with mosquitoes. This isn't necessarily abnormal in the Midwest, of course, but it was obvious that we were in for a rough night. We decided to make the best of the afternoon and evening and do some hiking and exploring, but we felt somewhat uneasy the entire time. It was dark. We retired to our tent Closing the tent quickly created sauna-like conditions inside, but unzipping it for a much-needed, albeit soupy breeze, also let in rain and swarms of bugs. To say that it was unpleasant is truly an understatement, but we carried on. 
Sweaty and exhausted, I started to drift in and out of a very uncomfortable sleep. But as the night drug on, I kept being awakened by the feeling of being choked, leaving me gasping for air. This happened several times. Sleep paralysis, perhaps? I was very tired and stressed, which are triggers, but I don't have a prior history of such events. I've undergone a sleep study because I snore, but I don't have clinically significant sleep apnea. I was getting cranky at this point, but it was pitch black, so I kept trying to rest. Finally, around 2 or 3 in the morning, it became obvious to me that neither the rain nor the heat had any intention of letting up, and I was going to continue being choked awake. I whispered to my girlfriend to see if she was awake, and her response was chilling. Yeah, I keep tasting blood, and every time I close my eyes, I see Native Americans around the tent. We both agreed that we were creeped out and had enough at this point, so we stuffed our wet gear into my girlfriend's car. Now curiosity got the best of me, so once we got on the highway, I did some internet searching. As it turns out, we were within miles of the largest mass execution in the history of the United States. In 1862, 38 Dakota men were executed and buried in mass graves near Mankato, Minnesota. The method of execution? Hanging. Neither of our experiences by themselves are necessarily enough for me to conclude that the supernatural was at work. We were both terribly tired and uncomfortable and in a fully unfamiliar place. So nightmares or sleep paralysis are logical explanations. Because of a history of atrocities, Native American curses or hauntings are unfortunately, endemic in our culture, so it's easy to blame creepy stuff on that. However, when taken together, the whole series of events lends credence to our belief that the experience was indeed paranormal. Our individual experiences had too many details that hinted at this tragedy that unfolded in the past. It all seemed too accurate, too coincidental. We had no prior knowledge of this horrific event, and we hadn't been to the area before. The rest of the time we spent in Minnesota was unforgettable. It's truly an awe-inspiring state, but we spent the rest of our nights in a hotel room. I love the podcast, Eric. And while this is long, I hope you can use part of my stories. Should I ever encounter something else in the great outdoors, I'll be sure to share. Thank you, Matt. Well, thank you, Matt. Now, as I mentioned previously, this story resonates with me because I too witnessed a Native American spirit when I was 12 years old. I actually saw it a few times that week, to be exact. Now my experience was much less disturbing than Matt's. His story is straight out of the TV show, Dead Files. But I'm with Matt on this one. It seems like a lot of this stuff can be easily explained. But when you find that rare gem that simply can't, man, that's good stuff. Thank you again, Matt, for sharing that detailed story. Now, we are nearing the end of this journey through the backcountry of North America, but I promised some Sasquatch, and I'm here to deliver. To kick it off, we hear from Jess in the state of Idaho. Hey, my name is Jess. I don't know if you guys are still looking for the outdoorsman stories, but... Back when I was a kid, I had to have been, I want to say, 
12, maybe 13 at the oldest. We had went out camping with a church group. It was a father-son camping trip. Me and a few of the other boys, we decided to go out into the woods, do a little hike. We had to have been outside of McCall. It's a pretty wooded area. Well, we went out there, and we had a lot of, like, sticks and pine cones get thrown at us. And I figured it might have been one of the dads kind of falling around trying to scare his kids. And we just kind of went about our business and playing in the woods. Well, a big stick went flying past my head. It had to have been maybe like three inches away from my head. But when I turned around, maybe about three foot off the ground, I saw, I want to say it was like a yellowish blonde with a gray kind of face to it peeking out from behind a tree and it dart right back behind that tree as soon as I turned around and saw it. Well, we all got out of that area and didn't think anything of it. We asked the dads around there like, okay, well, which one of you guys is throwing the sticks at us? And well, none of them had blonde hair. They were all brown or black hair or even bald. So that kind of spooked us a little bit more, but just kind of brushed it off and thought maybe we had seen something and the mind just playing tricks on us or something. Well, anyways, a little later on in the day, we were walking through the creek, me and my buddy, and had our shoes off just walking in the water. When from behind us, heard this big rock just crash right into the creek. I just looked at him, I said, dude, let's run, run. And wasn't until later when I started looking up on, like, the BFRO websites, I was, I was a little later in life, a few years later, I was probably in late teens, I had seen people in Idaho talking about the blonde-haired Sasquatches. I think I might have seen a juvenile Sasquatch. But that's my story. Really hope I got it in time for the Outdoorsman episode. Love the podcast. You're awesome, Derek. Thanks. Bye. Thanks, Jess. As I mentioned earlier, in regards to the experience submitted by Seamus, it sounds like the tree-peaking behavior described by many Bigfoot witnesses and researchers. The stick, rock, and pinecone throwing is as well. Although I think it's important to point out that two of those three objects fall from the sky naturally. But Jess saw the actual creature, so we likely know what was throwing those objects. The question now becomes, what was it? And to further explore this mystery, we head to the Sasquatch-rich state of California. This is Annie's call. Hi, Derek. This is Annie, and I'm responding to your request for stories from the outdoors. My story takes place about two years ago, and it was in August. I am a frequent backpacker, and this happened. I was uh, I was on a, a short two-night backpack in Desolation Wilderness, which is in part of the Sierra Nevada area, and we were backpacking our second night to Susie Lake, which is part of that trail is on the PCT, and it's not it's not actually very desolate, but we were there on a Sunday night, and so very few people, and so as we were walking, you know, hiking towards our destination, we ran into a ranger. She told us of a really nice little spot kind of hidden away off the beaten path, and she just wanted to be nice, I guess, and, and tell us about this because there was so few people on the trail. So it was just me and my friend. We set up. The place was really gorgeous. It was a perfect little spot. 
I'm going to talk about the weather a little bit because I think that's really important to the story. It's not a huge event that happened to me, but I feel like it's just something that I just can't get I can't get away from. Nothing nothing I I think of will debunk anything. And I'm not somebody who really necessarily believes in uh, the supernatural. And who knows, maybe somebody else will have experienced something like this and can tell me what happened. So uh, like I said, it was a windless night. I, I set up my tent nice and taut. It was completely guyed out. And for people who aren't backpackers or people who use tents, guying out a tent means you pull out every little corner of the tent and make it really taut. Now, my tent, it has stood up to crazy winds, and it takes a lot. It takes a lot to push my, my tent around in any way. It's hot like a drum when I put it up. Let's see, the night was, you know, really clear. I my tent was set up just, just probably a hair away from you know, the the minimum uh, amount that you can camp away from a lake, which is, I think is 200 feet, and so I could see the lake from where from my my tent door. It was like glass, totally clear, and because it was so so clear, I decided to leave my my fly up, my tent fly halfway open. And a fly is the second covering on your tent that you put on in case it rains. The inner tent is mesh. So I could, with my fly halfway pulled back, I can see the stars from where I'm laying. And if any breeze, you know, if there's any breeze outside, it'll rustle my fly like a little flag. And you can just hear it. You can hear it moving around. Oh, let's see. So I, I finally get to sleep. I'm half asleep, half awake, and I, I completely wake up. And I'm wondering why I wake up because I don't hear anything. And all of a sudden, I feel this pressure on my head. I, I'm laying in my tent with my face up in my tent, and I feel this the side of my tent, the closest to my head, press inward. And like I said, the only time that that's ever happened is when I was in super high winds. I thought I was dreaming, and I, I, I look out, I look over to the lake, which I can see from, from the mesh through my tent, and it's not even rippling. And I think, oh my gosh, it happens again, and I think there's someone outside my tent. I, I don't go into anything ghostly or weird. I go immediately to there's someone outside my tent feeling, trying to feel <laughs> if I'm in there or anything. And I'm thinking, okay, maybe it was just the wind. And, and I, I, I'm sleepy enough to believe that, even though the fly outside my tent isn't moving at all. The water isn't moving at all. I hear nothing. And my my tent pressed in again really far this time into my head. And I look I look back behind me and I see that my tent is going concave in this like really round shape. So that ruled out a bear nose or a deer nose or a deer antler. I thought maybe there was an animal outside even though I didn't hear anything. It was just perfectly round. Again, no wind. In my mind of going through all of these possibilities, is it a bear backing into my tent with his butt? <laughs> Or, or a deer backing into my tent with its butt. I mean, I feel like I would have certainly heard something scuffling around outside. And so my heart's in my chest, and I'm, I'm cycling through bear, deer, human. 
I'm not thinking anything paranormal. But again, there was no wind. There was no sound. It was round. It wasn't the shape of a hand or a bare nose or anything. I thought maybe my friend was pulling a trick on me. So some time passed. My heart slowed down. The pressure went away from my tent. And I put on my headlamp and got outside to investigate. And I don't see any footprints except for my own sneaker prints from setting up the tent earlier. And then I hear my friend uh, from her tent, you know, calling to me saying, Annie, is that you? And I said, yes. Did you hear something else? And she said, no, I just woke up. So she didn't hear anything either. It was just very weird. I have no idea what it was. I don't know if it was a spooky thing or a normal thing. I would prefer to think that maybe it was paranormal than an actual person outside my tent messing with me, but I don't think it was that either. So anyway, I don't know if this is going to make the cut for weirdness <laughs> for the show, but it was certainly weird enough for me. All right. Thanks for your time. Thank you, Annie. My first thought was similar to Annie's. Could it be a raccoon or bear's butt half sitting on the tent as it investigated the campsite? But I too agree. I feel like either of those two creatures would have made a good deal of noise, tipping off their presence. Now Annie did exactly what I would have done, if not got up while the creature was still there. I know, that's awfully easy for me to say, in the safety of Monsters Among Us Studios. So when you hear strange sounds like this, and experiences such as these, I think it's important that you overcome the fear and take a peek. And if you're going to go through all that... You might as well take your cell phone and snap a picture while you're at it. Thank you again, Annie, for sharing that story. And that brings us to the final story of the evening. Now, I normally don't use written submissions as the finale story, but this one was too good not to end on. So without further delay, this is a story by Indiana Man. This takes place four to five years ago in my home state of Indiana. My good friend Jeremiah and I were out bow fishing, and it's exactly how it sounds. We use our bows to hunt slash catch fish. And it was late in the night, probably 2 or 3 a.m., and we were out on the river in my riverboat, all decked out in lights for nighttime bow fishing, generator and everything. Anyway, we were having a good night, many kills slash catches, then my generator starts to overheat, so I shut it down. And we drifted into water for a little ways. About ten minutes into this, we were just talking back and forth, and we heard some splashing on the riverbank, which was maybe 20 to 25 feet from us. So I grabbed one of my battery-powered spotlights to see what it was. A deer, a coon, some sort of animal. And what we saw will forever stay with me. There stood a thing, about eight, nine feet tall, all black with glowing red eyes. It was huge. We both stood up in the boat looking at this thing. That's when it reacted. It reached out a hand toward us and took a step in the water, and then another. And in two steps it covered ten plus feet. Its hand was only another ten or so feet away. It had long fingernails and they were sharp like knives. 
and at about step three, Jeremiah raised his pistol, which was a nine millimeter, and fired two to three times hitting this thing. It released a scream, and the only way to describe it is between a wolf howl and a pig screaming. It was deafening. As Jeremiah did this, I ran over to the boat controls and turned on the engine to get the heck out of there. I steered straight to the boat ramp. I was not going to hang out there. Heck no. It was 15 to 20 minutes to the boat ramp, and once we got there, I got my truck and backed it into the water. We loaded the boat on the trailer, strapped it down, and it all took us maybe five minutes. And about the time that we got into the truck to take off, we heard that same deafening howl or scream. It was running through the woods right at us, and we were the only ones at the boat ramp. Luckily, my truck was lifted with a few LED light bars, and I turned them on to get a better sense of what was around us. Jeremiah readied his pistol. I grabbed my 308, which was under my back seat, and got ready for this thing to show itself again. I'm not going to lie, I was scared. This thing was coming in hot and heavy, like it was ready to fight. But it stopped right there at the tree line, and we could barely see it in the lights like it kept just outside of view. And we more or less had a showdown with this thing. It finally left after about five or so minutes. We never got off a shot, because it was hiding around the trees. We could only see the body or head for a split second. After it left, we both got in my truck and got the heck out of there. I've never went back to that part of the river again. I still bowfish every now and then and I always carry my pistol after experiencing that. And to this day, I have no idea what I saw. A Bigfoot? Skinwalker? Shadow Man? Alien? I have no idea. So if you have an idea, let me know. I do know that when Jeremiah shot it, it bled. I saw him put a few pistol rounds in this thing, and saw blood, so yeah, it was alive. Thanks again for the podcast. You're awesome and love the stories. The Indiana Man. Thank you, Indiana Man. Believe it or not, this is not the only story similar to this one to come out of the Hoosier State. Have you ever heard of Columbus, Indiana's Millray's Monster? Perhaps Indiana's most famous monster resides in Columbus's Millray's Park, a popular recreation spot shrouded in dense woods and known for its winding rivers and two small lakes. But in the autumn of 1974, Columbus's picturesque park became notorious for something else, a violent green monster. On November 1st, two separate groups of young women spotted the stalking creature hiding along the shore's edge, And in one encounter, the creature attacked the terrified teens through a car windshield. Horrified, they fled the park and reported the incident to local police, describing the monster as standing at six feet tall, with dark fur, a pale green face, and long, sharp claws. Several days later, the creature was spotted again, this time by two young men who gave the same description a tall, hairy beast with a light green face. 
and police officer Kenneth St. John was soon appointed monster control officer. Mobs began to flood the park, armed with knives and guns, determined to capture the beast once and for all. And today, Millrace Park remains a popular recreation spot for city residents. Was it a hoax? A Halloween prank gone wrong? We may never know. But for a time, a monstrous creature was said to call Columbus home. That segment comes to us from Journey Indiana on YouTube. The video actually features a few stories from the state, so I implore you to check it out. So is it possible that the Millrace monster returned for Indiana man to encounter? Or maybe it never left? Did Jeremiah injure or kill this creature? Or is there some prankster in a monkey suit rotting along a riverbank? That's the fun part about mysteries like these. The more you learn, the weirder these stories get. Thank you again, Indiana Man, for taking the time to share. And a big thank you to all the submitters, the submitted outdoorsman stories. But above all else, a humongous thank you to each and every one of you out there listening. You are the fuel that not only keeps these bonus episodes flowing, but the main show as well. So, from me to you, a Sasquatch-sized thank you. Monsters Among Us Beyond is written and produced by me, Derek Hayes. All audio used in this production is done so under the protection of fair use. And the music you're hearing? That's Coag Music. Thank you all for the support, and have an amazing night.